And then I'd like to start, we're going to talk about practice today. And so I'd like to start with um, something from James Charlton. He writes, best spiritual practice is to drop the word, the word best, the word spiritual, the word practice, is to re-enter your own garden, find each flower turned to the light. The word practice is to re-enter your own garden and find each flower turned to the light. Hmm. Okay. So, hmm. We are here, <laughs> about to begin practice together. And um, I just want to speak. We met yesterday in person. It was the first time that I was teaching in a mask inside. It had rained, so we had not, we did not have the opportunity, thank God for the rain, <laughs> to be outside. Um, and so we were, we just were inside with masks. And as people came in, you know, I could feel. Um, a lot of suffering, a lot of broken hearts. And so as we began class yesterday, um, most folks spoke up about what it was that they were experiencing inside. And words were used such as heartbreak, um, anger, over it, <laughs> loneliness, right? stuckness, and overwhelm. And I do that in class sometimes purposefully so that we can have the experience of realizing that um, our suffering is not unique to us, right? <laughs> that, that we are not so special as to um, be the only ones who are suffering in this world, that we, in fact, are um, in this together. And as we continue to move through, um, I don't even know what wave of the pandemic we are on, um, but it seems like third or fourth, maybe here in Oregon, at least. And, um, you know, there's a lot of suffering in multiple ways, whether you're working in the healthcare industry or running a small business like I am or caring for children who aren't yet vaccinated or for people with compromised immune systems or just living in a world that is um, drastically different than the one that we used to live in, right? All of it is overwhelming, let alone just our life. And as I sat in practice last week, um, so much happened in the world. You know, I was thinking uh, I wasn't in touch with the news or um, really the outside world. And so I did not know what was going on. And yet when I came home, um, just in a, such a short period of time, so much had shifted and changed, right? The world that um, 
had left to go into retreat was different than the one that I came out in, which seems like obvious. Of course, it's going to be different, but sometimes it's more different than others, right? And um, as I was sitting during last week, it there is this part where you're like, uh, and people spoke to this, you know, in the times when we had the opportunity to ask questions where it's like, okay, well, um, is this selfish, you know, to come to the practice over and over again? <laughs> like, is it, uh, is doing this work of trying to wake up, uh, does it matter? Right? Does it matter? Um, and I think that that's something that each of us has to keep practicing <laughs> and then answer that question for ourselves. Right. And think about the intention of how it is that we want to live in the world. And does the practice help us with that? Right. Like Mary Oliver says, um, what are you going to do with this one precious life? How do you want to live? How do you want to live? And does the practice of meditation and yoga and daily mindfulness support that or not? Right. Um, and I was thinking about yesterday as we ended class, the purpose of practice as a refuge. Right. Um, and I think that the word refuge can be an interesting one because uh, it can seem like, oh, are we hiding out in our practice? Are we spiritually bypassing? Right. Oh, let me see if I can find that definition of spiritually bypassing for you here. Um, it's such a good one. And I think it's so important uh, for us to just know um, that it exists, that spiritually bypassing exists. Right. And are we using the practice to escape our lives or are we using the practice to be more awake in our lives? Um Oh, I can't find it. That's okay. Um, but essentially, the idea of spiritual bypassing would be that we use the practice instead of meeting what's actually here to imprint upon um, our lives sort of this inauthentic light and love, <laughs> right, that masks what's actually here with what we wish was here. You know, so there's a there's an idea that it's not uh, truth. And so um, when the Buddha spoke about the refuge of practice, right, the refuge and there's three refuges in the Buddhist practice, which is um, the awakening itself. Right. The possibility of awakening. It's called taking refuge in the Buddha. And then there's the refuge in the teachings. Right. That for two thousand five hundred years and for yoga, even um, longer. Right that there people have been making a map for us that is tried and true, right? So that we can wake up in our lives and actually live them from a place that is um, rooted in a desire for liberation, not only for ourselves, but for all beings. And then the third refuge is Sangha is community, right? That we don't do this practice alone. We do it with teachers and we do it with each other. And that it is very often through relationship, through connection, 
that our greatest insights and wisdoms arise. Um, So there's that. There's the refuge of practice and reframing refuge not as being someplace to hide, but rather someplace where we get to lean into so that we wake up. Mm -hmm. Which means that sometimes it's not comfortable. Let me tell you, friends, um, sitting there for seven days, seven hours a day with myself, um, it becomes impossible to distract myself from what it is that I'm actually spending time thinking about. <laughs> and it is, um, I have a lot to say about it. And I'm sure I'll talk about it for years to come. It's, a, it's a, considered to be sitting in silence for that long is considered to be a purification process. Um, And it was very purifying. Yesterday, I actually felt almost like I was coming out from the other side of a cleanse or something like that. And um, yeah, it's it's very humbling to say the least. So at the beginning of the retreat, you're given some guidelines for practice, right? And I wanted to share them with you because I think that it speaks to the way in which practice becomes a place for us not to hide, but rather to have the courage to meet the our lives as it is, which right now is the tallest order, right? Because many of us wish that things were different, not only in terms of the pandemic, but in terms of the climate crisis, what's going on in Afghanistan, um, the advent of smoke season being a regular thing for many of us here on the West Coast, um, let alone just the the chop wood carry water of our normal lives and how difficult it is to be human. You know, that's like, it's so layered right now. It's so layered. And so at the beginning of the retreat, the retreat participants and at the end actually are given what are called, oh shit, there we go, um, are given what are called the five um, precepts, right? And so in Buddhism, in this insight meditation, it's Theravada Buddhism, which is the, what I'm, the lineage that I'm studying. Um, for any of you who want to look it up, it originates obviously with the Buddha, but then is translated through Burmese and Thai um, forest traditions, and then was brought to the West by people like Jack Kornfield, um, Sharon Salzberg, um, those are some big ones, the teachers that I was just with. Uh, so that's the, where, where it's coming from. And the five, um, precepts, which are like the ways in which we can practice living more ethically, right? And if we go back to that poem, we understand that we can drop the word best, right? that we can drop the word, the idea of doing it right all the time or the shoulds and the shouldn'ts, that it is rather an intention of how we want to live and how we want to be in the world. What do you want to do with this one precious life? So they are, um, the first one is non-harm, right? Um, And what does that mean? It means non-harm, in the world, like taking actions and being mindful that the way in which we live is not harming to ourselves, 
first and foremost, most because when we are harming ourselves, we will project that out into others and non-harm for the world and all beings, right? In our relationships with the earth, with one another, with our communities, right? Non-harm. And then the second one, and I think that this is such an interesting one, it's actually the one that's been um, sort of resonating with me and simmering in because I'd never heard it before. And it is to take only what is given, to take only what is given. And if we think about that in terms of the climate crisis right now, we can see how taking and taking and taking and taking and taking has caused so much harm. Right. And so for me, and I don't have an answer yet, I'm just offering this out to all of you because it's been really helpful for me to have a framework, to have this map, right, (laughs) that has been lived into so, so deeply by thousands and thousands and thousands and millions probably of practitioners. So what would it look like in your life to live with that guideline of taking what is only what is freely given? What does that look like? And I can think about it in terms of time, right? Um, Am I taking someone's time when it is not freely given? (laughs) I can think about that in terms of the earth. I can think about that in terms of food. I can think about that in terms of um, stealing and greed, right? There's lots of different ways to start to look at this and the way um, in which these precepts begin to wake us up in our lives so that we're more mindful. That's the point of them, right? And then the third one is wise speech. So telling the truth and being quiet, right? Knowing when to be quiet. So wise speech doesn't always mean like telling everyone (laughs) exactly what you think of them because that would be harming. So non-harm is kind of like the overlying, um, and this mirrors itself in yoga as well, and the yamas and the niyamas. Um, We're just doing it in this framework because it's what I've been studying lately. Um, But non-harm is sort of the we can always go back to that one to check into the other ones. It's the umbrella over all the other ones, keeping the other ones safe. So in wise speech, even though it might be a truth that you are saying or what seems to be a truth, even though we got to remember that feelings aren't facts, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to say it out loud and that there is an art to wise speech, that there is a rhythm and a music to it. There's the pause, like if you think of a really good song, um, there's the parts where there's like the dynamic sound in music, and then there's the parts that are, that are silent. And it's the art of weaving the silence with the sound that makes a beautiful, beautiful song. Right? And without the silence, it would just be like chaos. <laughs> um, and so that's why speech. And then we have non-harming with our sexuality, right? Non-harming with our sexuality. So how is it that we are with the part of us that is a sexual being, right? And then how is it that we are in relationship with those around us as we are with a sexual being? And then again, non-harm is that umbrella over it. 
So these are just, for me, they bring up so much questions. So many, many, many questions about like, what would it look like to move through the world, right? Being um, aware and awake about how I'm using my sexuality. What does that look like? And I don't know, I don't have answers yet. I'm learning like all of you. Um, And there's underneath all of this, and this is such a beautiful thing, is that as we did in the opening meditation, there's this really rooting into our inner wisdom, right? That has to happen in order for us to know what is harming and what is not, right? What for us, how does our body say no? And how does our body say yes? And so many of us are disconnected from that. We were taught to be, right? Um, A good friend of mine told me recently that everything that we learned, every way that we learned to cope was so that someone else could feel more comfortable. Just think about that, (laughs) right? We were conditioned to make those around us feel more comfortable. We weren't conditioned to go inside and feel what a no in our body feels like and what a super powerful yes in our body feels like. And so there's a way in which the, um, the word in Pali um, for mindfulness is sati and it actually means remembering, right? So it's a remembering, a coming together of all of our parts, right? And rem- remembering who we are without the conditioning, which always goes back to that Krishnamurti quote, uh, quote, you think you're thinking your own thoughts, but you're thinking the culture's thoughts. And you might think that you are acting in alignment with your own integrity, but many times we're coping (laughs) um, in acting and moving in the world in a way that makes us more palatable to others because that's what we learn to do. It's big stuff. Um, And then the last precept we learned at the beginning of this, the last guideline for practice was to not intoxicate our bodies or our minds, to be mindful about what we are taking in, right? Um, And that doesn't mean uh, I'm not talking about being a completely sober person or um, refraining from social media and TV forever, but rather like making good, clear, awake choices about what we're choosing to take in, right? The only thing we have to give in this world is our attention, <laughs> um, right? And so what we, how we uh, move and relate with our attention, with our body and our mind, right? Because usually substances create some sort of way in which it shifts our attention and the way that our brain works in this world. Um, And does that feel right for the moment or does that feel like we want to choose something else? All of this is about having more choice, more discernment, right? And so um, there's three sort of like beginning guidelines for practice And the first one is generosity, right? That we start with generosity towards ourselves, towards the earth, towards all beings. And then the second one is sila, and that's these precepts, right, of ethical behavior. 
guidelines for how the way that I like to think about it is that if I follow these guidelines, right, to the best of mm, take the word best out, um, really listening to my body, right, and noticing if I make a choice and it doesn't go well, then I choose differently the next time, right, because I was awake to the choice that I feel more peaceful. (laughs) And that's something that I said so often, I didn't even realize it over the past year. I'm like, oh my goodness, I just want to feel, I just want peace, right, for myself and for all beings. That's more than anything right now. Um, I want peace. I want to feel that feeling there is freedom in peace. There's a reason that they call it wartime and they call it peacetime. In wartime, no one is free. And when we're at war with ourselves, um, because we're out of alignment, out of our own integrity, it is not peaceful. And so there's a way in which, as we experiment with the questions that these bring up for us, that we have the opportunity to be able um, to notice, does this in your direct experience, right? No one's trying to convince you to live anyway. Certainly not me, Jesus. Jesus. Um, but rather to experiment and find out for yourself, right? Does this practice help you to be in alignment with the way you want to live or no? That's it. That's the, that's the question, right? Um, and then coming back here, we, I have this beautiful quote from an author named Larry Yang. Um, actually it's, it's kind of like three parts that I'm going to read, but, uh, he wrote a beautiful book called Awakening Together. Um, he is part of the East Bay Meditation Center. And this book is just out of this world. I kind of want to do like a community, read it, and then I've let, let's do a community meeting and like talk about what it is, how it is that we want to live, um, you know, together. But circling back around to that idea of whether or not sitting right, in meditation and leaning into waking up is selfish. And this is what Larry has to say about it. He writes, I know that for many people in the worlds of social justice and social transformation, being only mindful can feel like surrendering to the oppression or pain of an unconscious dominant culture without a concomitant recourse of remedying action to relieve the injustice or oppression. Our practice is not about, quote unquote, not doing or being passive in the face of the enormous pain in the world. It is being mindful precisely so that we are not paralyzed into unconscious behavior and can determine what is most needed to change the conditions of suffering and injustice. And in the middle of all that suffering is the unconscious, right? It's the unconsciousness, the lack of mindful awareness that allows it to continue. Even amid our own highest aspirations for social transformation, we so easily slip into living unconsciously. How often have we ourselves caused harm, not intentionally, but because we are not aware enough of what was going on? As a um, social worker in the profession of helping and advocating for others, 
One of the lessons I have learned, had to learn over and over again is not to rush too quickly to solve a problem. Even though with the best of intentions to be of service, if we serve without being aware of the details of the situation, if we try to be change agents without understanding deeply and broadly what it is we are trying to change, we can actually make things worse. I have a lot of work to do around that, my friends. And then lastly, we'll end here. Mindfulness allows us the space to create skillful, meaningful, and transformative action. It allows our actions in the world to come from a deep recognition of the causes and conditions of our lives so that change can emerge from the unencumbered goodness of our hearts and minds rather than arising from the place of our wounds or or injuries. It is this goodness that make our paths noble. And I have to tell you, friends, that the learning that I, the deep, deep learning that I received from the retreat experience was a connection with that innate goodness, a direct experience with it, even in the face of suffering. Um, and it's that possibility, like Ram Dass says, it's that possibility of experiencing ourselves in that way that brings us back to practice again and again and again um, so that our actions can come from that goodness and not from our woundedness. And I think we can look around the world right now and see how so much the unconsciousness, the not awake quality right, is really destroying us. It's really destroying us. Yes, to a book group. Okay, details to follow. Team announcements. Um, if you would like to participate in a 30-day meta mindfulness challenge, if you go to www.freeloveyoga.net, um, right at the top there, you can click, or, and I think on the online platform too, and sign up. Um, I'm charging what it costs. <laughs> And if you need a scholarship or financial help, never once for any of these things have I ever turned anyone away. And we have lots of folks who are also willing to help um, to sponsor you. But I would love to do that. We're going to do Zoom meetings. Um, There'll be five total Zoom meetings with me. um, And it's a wonderful way to be in practice together. So that's the team announcement. Costa Rica, we are over halfway sold out. So if you want to come retreat with me in January, um, hopefully it will be able to happen. I have faith that it will. Actually, I don't really feel any chaos in my body about that decision. Um, Please sign up. Please come. I would love, love to spend a week together in person. Um, Okay, let's go to our mats. You have your playlist.